Lo, how a rose they're blooming. This Christmas I have roses on my mind. Rosie was born four weeks ago Thursday, our first grandchild. Rosie is short for Rosamund, from the Latin Rosamundi, Rose of the World, whose birth we celebrate tonight. Lo, how a rose there blooming from tender stem hath sprung, of Jesse's lineage coming as seers of old have sung. In our house, the day prior to Rosie's birth felt to me a little bit like Christmas Eve, calm, quiet. Modern obstetrics being what they are, we knew tomorrow was the day. Over at Rosie's parents' house, the atmosphere was busier and on the father's side, more nervous. Rosie's father's name is Christoph, which like his daughter's, echoes Christmas. Christoph means Christ-bearer. Christoph's birth might not have happened. Somehow, Julie and I managed to get married without first discussing children. Would we have them? Would we not? On our wedding day, right here, on my side of the aisle, the complacent assumption was that we would, of course. I would find out that the new Mrs. Keller harbored reservations. The reasons why are none of your beeswax. <laughs> but they were weighty. Constitutionally, in marriage, a decision, decision to have a child requires a unanimous vote. So my wife's uncertainty was also mine. Now I imagine two distinctly different futures. Through the door on the left was life with children. Through the door on the right was life without. Living with uncertainty on big questions takes a little faith, and I had some. About average faith, I figured, for a young man who had grown up in church, raised by faithful parents. In college, I realized that I had above-average faith compared to peers from other backgrounds. On this matter of children, my faith was neither neutral nor dependent on a certain outcome. My hope was specific. The passage to the left was what I prayed for. But through either door, faith, hope, and love abide. I believed that. I'd been taught it here. As years went by, no children in sight, life was good at home. One day, walking by Julie sitting in an armchair, working yarn and needles under lamplight, I asked, just making conversation, what she was crocheting. It was none of my beeswax, she let me know, not looking up, but I peeked and saw it was a little teddy bear. The door in the on the left had cracked open. Through that door, down that road, our family through the years added Christoph, Mary Olive, Laura, John, and on no November 27th, Rosamond. 
From the look of Rosie's dad in the room post-delivery, one might have supposed that he was the one who had had the baby. From now on, when I hear the Christmas story, I'll imagine Joseph as more frazzled than I used to. Laura, Rosie's mom, was exhausted but otherwise serene, like Mary in the paintings. Her parents, Anne and Jimmy Porter, up from Hamburg, were on hand, and Laura had asked that the four grandparents come on into the room together to meet the baby at the same time. And that's when Laura told us that Rosamond's middle name is Juliana. Laura looked at Julie, looked at Anne, and said, Juliana, for her grandmothers, the two best role models our daughter could possibly have. Amen. Isaiah twice foretold it. This rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind, to show God's love aright. Sometimes people with time on their hands worry about God who seems not answerable to anyone. If God turned against us, there's no law to hold him back. Who will protect us from the great and terrible Oz? Richard Hooker, that splendid English theologian, answered that worry so well centuries ago. What holds God back is love. His being is the law of his doing, as Hooker put it. Christmas shows us who God is by what God does. When half spent was the night. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take, through the door we never opened, into the rose garden. T.S. Eliot was my father. Christoph Jr.'s favorite poet, and I inherited that taste. Those lines I just read are from early on in The Four Quartets, my father's favorite poem. The rose garden door was to the left, but the poet went right. We don't know why. From there, the poem begins its journey, a long one, until arriving finally in the yard of an English country church. The name of the place is Little Gidding. A small group of saints led by a priest named Nicholas Farrar had prayed there centuries before. As the poet approaches, a voice in his heart, still, small, reminds him, You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity. You are here to kneel, kneel where prayer has been valid. An old man walks up, a former professor of the poet that he hadn't seen for many years. In his ear, like Dickens' ghost of Christmas past, the professor shares a secret. 
Let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. In old age, the professor had grown disillusioned with himself. Complacently, he had always strongly felt that he acted with the best intentions. He was proudly known for his integrity. But in retrospect, that feels like hogwash. All is vanity, the seer of old had said. From the poem, the professor says, there comes a time, there comes a time for us to feel the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for the exercise of virtue, then fool's approval stings and honor stains. The man was no Scrooge, but even so, his encounter with the past was haunted. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds, unless restored by that refining fire where you must move and measure like a dancer. Restored by that refining fire where you must move and measure like a dancer. If there is a better description of life in Christ, I haven't heard it. It means faithful, hopeful, loving through the half-spent night. It welcomes specific hopes for this and that. Some child tonight praying for a bicycle with a ribbon and a bow right beside the tree. Or me, 40 years ago, praying someday to be a dad. Those gifts happen or they don't. Meanwhile, other gifts arrived unlooked for. Julie and I had not been married too long when, to my surprise and hers, I heard a call into the ministry. In parenthood, we reached the empty nest 10 years ago. In priesthood, the kids moved back in. I visited another priest the other day, older than I, whose heart is acting like it's had enough of pumping blood, day in, day out, year upon year, ba-bump, ba-bump, and it wants to lay its burden down. It seems to say, haven't I done enough for you? Some of his other appendages and parts echo the complaint. Us too, we love you, but we're tired. Our visit was in the same hospital where Rosie was born, a different unit, floor, and atmosphere. Like me, my friend had grown up in Boone County. Like me, his working life has been a blend of academic work and ministry. He preached by day and taught philosophy by night. He's a dear man. Before him lie two distinctly different futures. The door to the left is continued life on earth for a little while yet, with his kids, grandkids, friends, loved ones, peace on earth. I'd miss them if I go, he told me, so I'd rather stay, and we pray for that. But the door to the right doesn't frighten him at all. Hope, faith, and love abide. 
And there are other loved ones, many of them, waiting for him, happy and expectant over there where all is calm and all is bright. I'm not ready to leave, he says, but I'm ready to go if that makes sense. I've been ready for that pretty much my whole life. He'd been taught that in church and learned it from faithful parents. Average faith sees through that final door. And little getting the fourth quartet towards the end, a mystic voice chimes in. All shall be well. Every manner of things shall be well. The words of Christ, as heard by Julian of Norwich, who knew him, knew Christ. In the last stanza of the long poem, that line repeats at intervals like a drumbeat growing louder. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well by the purification of the motive and the ground of our beseeching. These refrains surround the old professor in the poem and his hard truth of things ill done to others' harm, and they soften his predicament. In the end, it is not for us to judge ourselves any more than it is for us to judge our neighbor. Rosie will be bad or good, but that won't stop us from loving her. With our judgments, we usurp the prerogatives of God, who won't allow it. Eliot, a poet of above-average faith, Sings out like Simeon and his nunc diminis. The dove descending breaks the air with flames of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge of sin and error. Can something good be fearsome? If we're not used to it, it can. If an angel said, boo, our hearts would stop. In her encounter, Mary was braver than the shepherds, but even she at first was troubled rather than elated. On wings of the dove, with fire, love descends from heaven. Then from the earth, it rises. And on the stem of Jesse, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, in the city of David, from the womb of Mary, it opens. <laughs>